Whatever you're doing while you're listening to this, I must apologize in advance because it's my intention to distract you. Not because I think what you're doing isn't important, but because this is one hell of a conversation. I'm Paddy Upton, and in this first ever Lessons from the World's Best, I speak to my mate Dale Stain, who is also a South African cricketer who spent just a few days short of seven years as the world's number one fast bowler. Dale the cricketer is well known for his fierce, fiery, uncompromising assault on the world's best batsman. Yet off the field, as you'll discover in this conversation, he's a genuinely down-to-earth, chilled, humble person, surfer, skateboarder, fisherman, and dog lover. We'll chat about how this young, wannabe professional skateboarder from a small bush town who didn't even know the game of cricket existed, went on to become the world's best bowler. Dale shares without filter things like getting his first professional contract to play overseas, only to discover he first needed to learn about life and things like washing his clothes before he could focus on his bowling. He lets you into his inner world. Imagine you're the best in your field. You get it wrong on the world's biggest stage and your team loses while the world is watching. How do you recover? Do you recover? To be honest, his answer numbed me a bit. You'll get to meet the persona he adopted, how he transformed from his natural, friendly nature to the warrior that intimidated opponents, even when the real Dale was exhausted and felt far from intimidating. If you're keen to learn more about stuff like confidence, success, failure, mental well-being, authenticity, humility, and have a few laughs along the way, then stick around a little longer. Dale shares all this and more in a very relaxed, down-to-earth and unedited manner over a coffee sitting on a couch in my lounge in Cape Town. The coffee was because we had just done an open ocean swim together along a rugged coastline just down from my house and in beautiful blue eight degrees Celsius water. Check out the footage and Dale on my Instagram. It's flippin' awesome. Maybe just to, to kick off to give some context, which we'll sort of be talking to people out there and then just to jump into the conversation between you and I. Sure. So the context is we're sitting here in London in my lounge with Dale. We've been friends, what, for 10 years or more. We've surfed and fished and around the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, been involved in some cricket. Um, what's quite rad is that You've also been, apart from being a surfer and a fisherman and a, and a mate, is you've been called one of the greatest fast bowlers of all time. You've been nominated in the International Cricket Council Test Team of the Year eight times. Um, you spent, uh, what is it, uh, 2,536 days, just nine days short of seven years as the number one fast bowler in the world, which is the most anyone has been at that, that position um, since World War II. Um, and you were the number one test bowler in the world for a record 263 consecutive weeks. But for me, the, the exciting thing is you, Dale Stain, you've also known by anyone who knows you, just a genuine good guy. In fact, my fishing, surfing friends and that, and a lot of people I speak to get to meet you say to me, like, wow, is that Dale Stain? 
I can't believe it. He doesn't seem he doesn't seem doesn't come across as the superstar because you're not. You don't come across. It's almost like you don't see yourself as the superstar, but you are one of the greatest of all times, which is something that I've always really appreciated and admired. And we'll talk about that. Um, and the the other thing is the context piece is we both sitting having a nice hot cup of coffee because we've just come back from swimming about seven, eight hundred meters. We did an open ocean from, swim from Sandy Bay to Landano at seven o'clock this morning. Um, and the water was eight and a half degrees Celsius. So it was freezing. Um, how was that swim for you this morning? No, that was awesome. That was really good. Um, the jump was also, I love things like that. Like, yeah, just looking for things like that's, you know, like on your doorstep. You, I didn't even realize that this is on my doorstep. You know, you can do this all the time. But it was epic. Like the water was a little cold, but then once you get into it, because I think we surf a lot and I surf in Komiki a lot, the water's kind of cold. It's not too, it's not too bad. Um, and then, it, yeah, it was, just, it was epic, eh? <laughs> I yeah. couldn't believe how clear the water was at that one section there. It was just beautiful. Yeah, so it's, I mean, that's, that's something that's obviously that I know that you always love doing is looking for new adventures and stuff. And obviously the sea and is, is one of your passions. Yeah. Um, just as we're kicking off this conversation, so to be really honest, for me, it's I'm really excited to be starting this podcast series. This is my first one. So... I'm stepping into a new space here. There's a certain amount of trepidation, a certain amount of excitement, wondering how it's going to go. Um, it's so awesome to be doing it with you, with a mate, to someone that we, we have that relationship. We've been friends. We've worked together. Um, have you been involved? Have you done a podcast and been on a podcast before? I think I did one the other day um, with a guy named Lewis. Uh, I just must remember his surname. Um, but that's about it, eh? Like, I haven't really done much. Um, I listened to them, that, which is the strange thing. I've just never done one. And I think my dad did one, <laughs> which is quite weird. But uh, he beat me to it. Um, somebody from India got hold of him and he did a podcast. Um, and he gave all the stories away that I put it, I should have saved for my book. But <laughs> <laughs> it's quite funny, but it's fine. Um, but no, I haven't done one yet. Um, so yeah, I'm also kind of excited now because cricket's now kind of died down and like I can talk about it uh, differently. I think when you when you when you are a cricketer, I think there's things that you have to you you're not allowed to say or you should like stray away from saying because you can get ridiculed or get into trouble from whoever it is your employee or something like it. Whereas when I'm sitting where I am now, I can really just say what I want to say because it's now my opinion um, or my my view of things. Which is quite nice. Yeah. And I guess also, you know, part of the, the, the conversation, we can also talk about some real things that went on for you that you possibly as a player wouldn't have wanted your opposition, for example, or your coaches or your teammates to know. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the things that you've spent 15 years having this kind of conversation with a camera in your face with an interviewer. Uh, and generally, as we know, what athletes do then is you put your game face on and you edit and you audit what you say for that very reason, knowing that you don't want to say anything controversial that can get you into yep. trouble. But I'm hoping sitting in my lounge here, having a, having a lack of swim, a cup of coffee between mates, we can really have a real conversation about stuff that, stuff that counts, stuff that matters. Yep. Um, 
So that's yeah, what I'm really excited to do. Cool. And, and maybe just to go like back, you I think most people know, and I don't want to cover stuff that is already out there and people already know about, but so you were born in Palabor, this small town up somewhere near the Kruger National Park, and you were maybe a skateboarder and maybe a cricketer. <laughs> Talk to me about that. Yeah, it was just, um, like cricket came late to me. Like I think it came to me at about... 10, 11, which is not super late, but I mean, if you're in India, you're born with a cricket bat in your hand, you know? So I was I was late to that party. I didn't even know it kind of existed. Um, and then I went up to go and visit some family in Zimbabwe, Christmas holidays and stuff like that. And they were playing in the backyard and I wanted to kind of figure out what this thing was. And yeah, next thing you know, I got back to school in January and um, I just need to be become aware of it, be made aware of it. And then I realized, oh, well, it was always there, you know, cricket was always there. So then I started playing and, um, but being in a small town like Palabora, it's just like, it's just bush. Most of the time on weekends, I'd just be fishing or I'd be in the bush. Um, so cricket was fun, but, you know, to get to cricket, I'd have to walk through the bush or, you know, it was that kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, as I got a little bit older, I started to venture into other things like skateboarding and art and music. And so I've always had that kind of side to me, um, which is probably why I like surfing right now. And I started skating again. Um, yeah. And then I think was I was eight, 19. I moved from Palabora to Pretoria to kind of pursue cricket. And uh, also thought at the same time, I, was, I took my skating stuff with me because I was like, if I want, I'm, honestly, I wanted to become a professional skateboarder more than I wanted to become a cricketer. I think when I first started playing cricket, I wanted to become a cricket player for South Africa. Every picture on my wall was just like, you know, Alan Donald, John T. Rhodes, Hunty Cronier, that kind of era. Um, and then at about 16, like five years later, when I started taking skateboarding a lot more seriously, I was like, this is what I want to do. And uh, when I got to Pretoria, I was pushing both. But cricket paid more. <laughs> so I was playing club cricket for Eastress and they were paying me like 500 rand a game or something like that, where skateboarding was just costing me money at that time. And uh, so I had to eventually just give up the skateboarding and go in the direction of cricket, which worked out okay, I suppose. But Yeah, it did work out pretty okay. And you've, and you've, you've come the full circle. You're back to sk skating now more than what you're playing cricket. Yeah, there's that funny story about that fisherman that sees a kid and he sees him fishing. And then he says, why are you fishing? He says, I'm catching one fish and I take it home and I feed my family. And he's like, well, if you fish here for a little bit longer, you can catch two fish, take one to your family and sell the other one. And eventually it goes full circle where he convinces this kid that if he fishes for long enough, he can own a boat and he can own a business. And then when the kid says, and then when I've got all of that, what do you want to do? And he said, well, then you can just fish. And it's exactly <laughs> what I'm doing right now. I used to skate, um, did the cricket thing, and now I'm skating again. So it's great. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. So, you know, we jump ahead. You When you really started popping through and it, it was clear you were had every chance of making it as cricket. So you you started, you went to the UK and you played, I think, in the counties for Essex. And your first sort of stint there w wasn't all that great. I think you, you know, you got 14 wickets at an average of 60, which is is really not good. No. Um, and then soon after that, you, you were picked for South Africa, which was awesome. But then you went back to England to play. And then again, in that sort of first outing, you, you only got eight wickets at an average of... 
52 again, which in the context is not really that good. And um, the record would show that you bowl eight no balls in nine overs, which suggests someone who's really struggling with their rhythm or with their feet. So you didn't start really well, okay? And which is pretty normal. If you were to think, how, how was that for you starting out hitting the, the big leagues in terms of county and then the South Africa and then coming back from those realizing, well, I haven't really done very well. How, how, how was that for you? It was like, for me, it was like just life. I wanted to learn about, I, I didn't want to learn, but I realized that going and playing county cricket was, I was learning about life more than it was cricket, really. Like, I needed to have better equipment. I wasn't, you know, fully aware of the things that I, I required to perform at the highest level. And I remember getting to Essex and they dropped me off at this house and they're like, all right, you know, here's your keys for your house. Here's the car that you're going to be driving and good luck. And I was like, okay, you know, how do I do my laundry? Who's going to cook for me? You know, like I like, didn't know all of this stuff. How am I going to get to the ground? There were, like cell phones back then didn't have GPS and stuff like that. Like we had, a, I had a landline at, in, my, in my house. Um, and like, I just figure out how to like survive, you know, like cricket was the least of my problems <laughs> right there and then. Um, so maybe that's like a, like a reflection of why my cricket wasn't doing too well, because most of the time I was just trying to figure out what am I going to make for dinner tonight, let alone trying to get the batsman out. But uh, it was like life learning things. And I felt like once I'd, once I'd gotten some of my life stuff sorted, like I've figured out how to earn a salary and what I, where to, what excuse me, where I needed to put my money, like, you know, like, this goes into that, this goes into this, you know, rent, blah, 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 um, learned how to do my laundry and, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Then my cricket started to somehow just get better because my kit was now in place. Um, I was wearing sunblock for the first time, you know, it was just, <laughs> I was growing up, you know, and, and all of a sudden my cricket just went to the next level. Um, and maybe I just kind of missed that in in the early stages of my my like younger youth, you know. So, so you really were the the young boy from a small town in Palabor. All of a sudden, you've landed in this place and you had a whole lot of stuff to learn. Did you mm. make your Did you make your bed? Are you some, do you make your own bed? I do. Look, I went to hostel, so you know, like there are things that I'm really good at. You know, like sweeping, cleaning, and I'm pedantic with things like that. Like I'm I'm very I've got everything in order, but like. Living in hostel, like you don't you don't cook. No one teaches you how to cook. You kind of like get you given your three meals a day, and you get given your run order. Like you know, you got to be at class at okay. seven, and then this, that, and that, and that. But then after that kind of stuff, they kind of like throw you to the world, and it's like, are you your own boss now? You need to figure it out for yourself. We've given you like the basics. Now you need to take it from there. But um, and I'm sure everybody struggles with that kind of stuff. But I found that once I figured out that uh, quickly. Um, then my cricket just got so much better. And I started hanging around guys like Polly and um, whoever it was. I can name, I can spit a million names out, Gerald Dross, Daryl Cullen, and all of these guys. And I just watched the way they went about their business. And I just picked it up, little, little things, little things, little things, and asked questions. Why have you got this little bag? And it's like, oh, this bag's got all my spikes and my, you know, my um, sunblock, and it's got this, and it's got all those little things. And toe tape and everything, all right, cool. And I go and get that stuff and all of a sudden it just, I didn't feel rushed, you know. I walk onto the cricket field and I felt like, cool, I've got the good socks on, my toes are strapped. I wasn't struggling with, you know, 
bloody toes and sore feet like other guys were and like I was earlier, I had my shit in order, you know, and it kept me on the field for longer and I was able to just do better, you know. So it's interesting that you you actually had arrived literally at the professional level and there was some very basic stuff that you still, you didn't have in place and hadn't figured out. And I guess that was probably, that happened more 15, 20 years ago when cricket had just started sort of becoming professional. But it's interesting that as a professional, you're arriving at the highest level of the game and you haven't even figured out having the spare socks and the spare boots and a bag for, and, and you say even just learn to put sunblock on. Yeah. So, Well, I think what happens is that people often spot you as a talent and then they see you and then they just go, oh, this guy's got what, well, they think uh, this guy's got what it is required to perform at the highest level. So they grab you and they just pull you in. You, you're joining this party. Yeah, come with us. And this is the professional international party. Welcome. And you're like, um, and you just kind of skip a whole bunch of levels, you know? And like, then you don't do very well. And then like, all right, well, you're not as good as we thought you were. And they kick you back out, you know? And then you've got to go and do all those levels again. You've got to kind of catch up, you know? And and that's what happens with with some guys when they when they they're these serious talents maybe Ab de Villiers and you know whatnot some of them last and they 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 figure it out quickly. Um, I needed a year or two, like to go and kind of do my apprenticeship, so to speak. So we're actually interesting if you take that concept now. So so a youngster today who suddenly is that is that talent that gets spotted and gets pulled into the limelight. What they need to deal with initially now, and it's something that we've spoken about before, is all of a sudden now with social media, there's all this attention on them. And are youngsters today prepared for what it's actually like to live life in the limelight, to have such scrutiny on you, to be the superstar all of a sudden? And yes, that your talent is good enough to get you onto center stage, but are we preparing youngsters well enough to actually be able to manage themselves, their lives, and what are the dynamics that come along with all this attention and spending nine, ten months a year traveling around the world, living in a hotel room by yourself? Yeah, I think that's the one of the biggest things. Like, maybe kids like I like I'm not in school, but I read a lot about like school bullying and stuff through social media and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm pretty certain they have an understanding of what it's like to already have that kind of pressure because as a professional, the first thing you do is you go to your Instagram or your Twitter and there's a lot of people that are hating on you, you know, like they don't want you to do well. <laughs> they don't even know you, but they they saying stuff. As kids will probably experience that at school. Um, so maybe in a sense, they, again, they, they might be hardened uh, a little bit to it, but certainly would require somebody that once they step into that professional kind of limelight, somebody to kind of train them and say, look, don't do this, do this, don't look at that, be aware of this, just so that they are aware. Does, does that happen? Uh, I don't think so. Not, not nearly enough. I mean... Um, I don't think anybody kind of prepares you for it, like any of that kind of stuff. I went to a whole bunch of World Cups and I can promise you that the chances of winning a World Cup are very slim. <laughs> doesn't matter how good you are. I'm not a mathematician, so I can't give you the numbers, but there are 10, 12 other teams that are going there and there's only one team that's going to walk away a winner. Um, even, if you, if, even if you come second, it's not like the Olympics where, you, where you're proud of your silver medal. You're, you're the first of the losers, essentially. You, know, you don't get anything yeah. for, for coming second. And um, 
And no one kind of prepares you for that, you know? Like, no one kind of says, are you willing to accept those odds, you know? That the chances are that you're not going to win. But if you are going to win, this is this is the best. But let's focus on on the higher percentage is that you're not going to win it, yeah. you know? Maybe we should be focusing on what happens to somebody more in that space. Because, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, when we lost the 2015 World Cup, I reckon it took me a good year before I started to find my feet again. Like I had to fake it for a, for a solid year before I started to let go of some of the stuff that I had experienced. And I would, at that point, I'd already been playing international cricket for 10 years, you know? So you've been playing for 10 years at that point. You've been at the number one bowler in the world for nearly six years. You bowl the final over in a World Cup semi-final against New Zealand. They're chasing 11 runs of the last over and they get that 11 runs off your over. So you're saying to me after 10 years, and you're someone who's really social media savvy, you've been on it right from the beginning, and it's taken you a year to recover from that experience of that one over and the repercussions of that. Yeah, definitely. I, I, actually, I think it took me a year to recover from it. And then I don't think I was ever quite the same in a cricket sense after that. Like, if I, I mean, I don't have to go and look at my stats to tell you, but my best years were up until 2015. After that, I showed signs of how good I was um, in the odd series, in the odd innings, in the odd game here or there, but I wasn't as consistent after that. Just because of that year, like the so talk to us. Not, what what was what was what actually went on for you that night, the next day, soon after that, that you were the guy who were hit for six. Yeah. To I not. mean, I had to let go. Of, I had to understand that that it wasn't. I didn't lose the World Cup because I went for six. You know, like that was just the final. You know, I had to also kind of convince myself that there was other things in the game that cost us the game. You know. Um, but that was the final, I will rem be remembered as that final moment, you know, because I bowled that ball and everything. So it took a long time, but the next day you kind of wake up and it's, it's gone, it's finished. And you're already starting to focus on the, on the next thing that's coming up. But at that, it, take, it had taken us like three years to prep for that World Cup. You know, there was tours, there was camps that we went on, there was um, preparation, there's game plans and all of that kind of stuff. And then you lose a cricket game and then the next day, you're just at zero, you know? Like, you gotta, you're at the bottom of the mountain now, you know? You're staring at it up again, and you gotta just kind of carry on yeah. with life. Um, and it took me a long time to get out from the bottom of the mountain, you know, in that valley, so to speak. I, I, it took me a long time to kind of find myself to climb back up and get going, because even things after that, like I would go and play in the IPL, I wasn't then considered the first choice, so I was 12th man, I didn't play, and that, that was like, oh, you know, it's all because of that, you know? It was all because of that one ball, you know? Like, so, so, so let us into your head. You still, I want to go back to this. You said it took you about a year to really recover from that. If, if we could have got inside your head on those darker days or times during that year, what, would, what was the narrative that was going on in your head? What were you saying to yourself? Just, I don't, I can't even remember, you know? I've kind of let it go now a little bit, but I do know that, like, it took that long. Um, but just, I mean, even in lockdown last year, I remember sitting in lockdown, we were sitting at the house, had total boredom, and they, they were playing the, the, the games over on TV. And it was only last year that I watched the full over again 
the full six balls. They were playing the whole game. And um, when, you know, when I got hit for six, I literally just broke into tears and I had to go and stand outside. Now, <laughs> I understand that we were in lockdown. Everyone was depressed already. <laughs> I didn't need that. <laughs> but anyway. So, so, so you were watching last year, which is six years later, and you walked outside watching that broke down into tears and had yeah. to walk out the house. Yeah, it was the first time... I, I'd watch the six balls again. I, I can't tell you, whilst I sit here right now, I can't tell you the order in the six balls that I bowled because I just wanted to forget it so badly that I was like, I'm never going to kind of like remember it again, you know. Um, but there was also this kind of like, I felt this like weight of expectation that I was a senior player in the team and I felt how hectic it was on me that I didn't want to show any of the younger guys the effect it was having on me. So I had to kind of like walk around and fake it for a long time, fake a smile, tapping guys on the back and saying, don't worry, it's going to be okay. You know, uh, you, you're going to have, it's not the end of the world. It was the end of the world, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was fucking with me. But like, I, I didn't want it to destroy Quinny de Kock or another young player who I could see was sitting there and it was really having strain on them. And I was like, if I can show them that I'm okay, maybe they might be like, okay, so Dale's okay it's not bothering him that much. It's not the end of the world, but it, it was, you know. So, so that is something that really is prevalent in sport, what you've just described now, is you have a real big disappointment, but you put your smiley face mask on, you're really hurting inside, but you want to pretend and show your teammates and show people out there that it's not okay. And you've actually not even revisited those six balls at any one point until six years later, which suggests it's still really inside you. It's, it's something that's burning up inside you that's actually come out in tears six years later. It begs the question, what might it have been like to be able to be real and really share with your teammates back then how it was really affecting you, how you were really feeling. Um, what might that have been like? Is, uh, that's obviously an option. Is it better? Yes, it serves you. And yes, that's what we do in sport is we hide what we're really feeling, which we now knowing and is coming out more and more in the conversation around mental well-being that that's, that's actually not the, necessarily the smartest thing to do. It's the traditional. Um, how might that, that have been or for you to really actually show what you're feeling and go yeah. into those feelings and experience of it. Well, I mean, when we went to the to the last World Cup, which was 2019, um, I didn't play a major part. I had a my a busted wing just before we went. I went to the IPL, and unfortunately, that's I, a broken shoulder. Yeah, you know, broken shoulder. Yeah. But it wasn't broken. I just hurt it, and uh, I wasn't gonna. I didn't recover in, in time. And unfortunately, a World Cup's not like a series where you can come and you miss a couple games, and they can pull you back in. You've got a squad, and that's your squad. You've got to give it to the ICC and say, "This is the guys that we're taking." So I went, and uh, I wasn't gonna recover, so I had to go home. By midway through the World Cup, I was actually fine, but by that point, they didn't need me anymore because they needed someone there and then to play. So, um, but building up to the World Cup, I felt like the, my, my biggest role, apart from playing, was just to prep the guys for the worst. Because, like I say, the, the chances of winning a World Cup are like, you know, I don't know the numbers. It's probably 10% for every team. Maybe maybe it's a little bit more. Maybe it's like 16% or something like that. I don't yeah. know, you know. Um, but there's an 85%, 90% chance that you're probably not going to win the World Cup. 
but we focus a lot on that 10%. We put three years of prep into the 10% of, of winning, you know, and we hardly spend any time um, preparing any of the guys for the disappointment of what can happen, you know, and loom after. Uh, I mean, I had a year of it, like, after 2015, and I really wanted to let the guys know that this can affect you big time, you know, like, it can have a major effect on your career and your life. So maybe we should just spend a little bit of time, if not a lot of a time, just focusing on, on the chances of not winning the World Cup and what happens, you know, and not just say, it'll be okay, the sun will come up tomorrow, because that's, that's we just say that, you know, like, can we just go into this a little bit? Um, but I don't know if we did. Uh, and and I, I went to that World Cup and I had to leave because of my shoulder. So I, I, and I didn't play another ODI for South Africa again after that, I suppose. Maybe I did, I don't know. But at that point, it was over, Cadovas for me. So, so let's talk about difficulties in careers and managing difficulties. Again, there's a lot of talk, particularly now, about do we, particularly as male athletes, manage our emotions and ourselves very well around the disappointments, the losses and the lows. It's well known that when you're a lot of athletes who are in a low slump perform end up spending a lot longer than necessary in that slump because they don't talk to anyone. They just get stuck in their own head. They put the smiley face mask on and the problems just literally eat them up from inside. So talk to me about if you were to scan back over your career, time when you had a disappointment or loss or low period and you in reflection, handled it badly. What did that look like? And maybe later on in your career with your experience when you handled a low disappointment well, and just to contrast those two. So first of all, can, can you think of a time that you went through difficulty and in hindsight you probably weren't smart the way you managed yourself? I think the, that 2015 World Cup and maybe right at the beginning of my career um, when I was just a bit useless at everything. <laughs> I, was, I was nowhere. Um, and then... I, I had a, I had Bouch actually sit me down and have a stern word with me. Thank you, Mark Boucher. Mark yeah. Boucher. Yeah. And um, I was like, all right, cool. Rather than like kind of shitting on me, um, can you can you teach me? And I don't think anybody had ever asked him something like that because he is like a drill sergeant. He normally says this and people kind of like nod their head. And instead of saying that, I was like, all right, then, you know, I'm going to be at your level, yeah. Um, don't look down on me. Teach me this. And okay, so he I'll, he was he was a teammate at the time. He was, he was a wicketkeeper and a more senior player than yourself. Yeah. And he was like, "All right, cool." And um, and we went about it. And I was the fast bowler, and he was the wicketkeeper, and we built this relationship of of catch. Um, he catches the ball. If I do something wrong, he comes and shits me out. If I'm doing something right, he comes and tells me you're doing it right and stick to it. Uh, and that went from just not just on the field, but that went to off the field too. So if I was making financial silly decisions and I wanted to buy a, a fast car or a big car, he was like, don't do that, you're wasting your money. I'd be like, okay, you make sense. And I just kind of looked up to him from that point. Um, so he kind of helped me out and I, I figured that I did that well then. But then I went, and in all honesty, I went a long time just doing extremely well. I mean, you said the numbers in the beginning over yeah. there. The, it was like, it was a, a Cinderella dream, really. You know, like it was a purple patch that lasted seven years. Yeah. Um, so there wasn't a hell of a lot of disappointment in that in that that time, and I think maybe that was a, another big thing because at that time, everything was going so well that um, at some point I was I was doomed for some kind of failure and like uh, or some kind of a setback, 
and I needed to have somebody to kind of, or something to rely on to get me through that, that difficult time. Uh, 2015 was one of them. And then probably the next time was my, when I broke my shoulder in Australia. But having had some disappointments before, I was able to kind of like get over the shoulder quite quickly and then get back into, into critical. So we go back to 2015. If you had that experience over again and you concede the 11-1 runs that were required for New Zealand to win, how would you have managed yourself differently? Um, I would have probably tried to see someone like, and speak about the things. Um, at the time in South African cricket, I think we just, like often what happens in sports, uh, if you do badly, it's either the players or the management that get the boot. So after that World Cup, I think we went to the IPL or something, we literally didn't see each other as a squad for like three or four months after that. So we all flew home and the ne next time we saw each other, we were getting back together for another tour, which was like three months later. Um, and it was like, oh, how's everyone? Hope, hope everyone's been well. And it was like, just whatever happened at the World Cup, hope you've had the last three months to kind of sort it out. You know? So it was never really formally addressed. No conversations were really had. It was up to each individual to, you go and deal with this disappointment just, yourself. Just deal with it yourself. And when we get back together, we've got to carry on like, you know, like nothing ever happened as, as, a, as a team. And at, at the time, it, like, I felt like that team was like my family. You know, I'd, I play every game I play, all three formats of the game. So I'm, I'm spending the bulk of my time, my year, um, in that space. And uh, three months later, when I rejoin that space, and I know I'm gonna be part of that space permanently now again, um, everyone just kind of didn't wanna talk about it and just like, let's carry on. Um, so if you, if you were the, 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 the coach or the CEO, for example, of that team, what, what, what would you have done differently? What would have been, what would have really helped? I would have certainly have just like, created something to kind of have the guys kind of come out and speak and like talk about this, talk about what happened, you know, like not just, not just the, the cricket side of things, but if it's had any kind of effect on, on you physically, mentally, you know, anything like that. Um, I mean, they're your, <laughs> they're your employees. They would make you <laughs> money and you and need to make sure that they're in the best mental and physical condition possible to be able to win your games in that. Um, okay, so you say now you would, you would have got people to talk about it. If someone had come along to Dale Stain then and said, okay, Dale, this has happened, let's talk about it. Would you have been free and comfortable open to really talk about, you said there was a, a year that you really struggled to come out of that. Would you have opened up and spoken freely about your experience, if you were to be honest with yourself now? Maybe maybe not, um, but I've always had good relationships with any kind of uh, um, body that we've had in the in the South African Protea cricket team from a mental point of view. When we've had mental guys come in, like a psych psychologist, psychiatrist, psychologist, yeah. So, yeah. Um, come in from yourself to Jeremy Snape to, um, is it Henning? What was his surname? What was his surname? He was with the Springboks. Hirika, yeah, Henning Hirika. Um, I've always had good relationships with, with... You've had good relationships, but you have good relationships with everybody. That's Dale Stain. Yeah. But the question is, would you have really opened up and spoken to somebody then? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a couple of years now, but... Um, 
but I know that I am now. Okay, I know. So, 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 so let me, having worked with you in that role for a couple of years, let, let, let's yeah. just assume that possibly you wouldn't have. Yeah. You would really have needed. So why wouldn't you have had that conversation then with someone? And again, it's you, but a lot of other, a lot of other athletes are like this. We all know to speak about stuff that's eating us inside. We don't. Why would you not? Why don't other athletes speak about those things that are eating them up inside? I, um, I think you just want to kind of give off this kind of feeling that there's nothing that bothers you. Nothing can bother me, you know? And it's fine. Like, it's okay. I'll just get on with business. Which is bullshit. Which is absolute crap. Um, so wh and why do you think, wh why do we do it? Maybe it's a culture. Maybe it's just the kind of culture that, we, that we've created from when I'm young, you know? Like, cowboys don't cry kind of crap, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. Like... I'm 38 now and, you know, I watch Marley and me and trust me, I will cry. So, <laughs> like, I'm happy to say that. Um, yeah, and it just took so long, you know, for me to kind of get there. But I don't know, maybe for a while when I was, when I had that kind of mentality, I did have the edge on everybody else. I mean, the, the, those numbers are there. It took a long time and I was that throughout that entire time, you know. So I to go, so I hear you. Um, my understanding and my experience is that one of the main reasons why athletes don't talk about what's really going on, why you didn't talk about what's really going on, is because of what do you think people would think about you if you said, I'm really struggling and battling with the fact that I bowled the last over that where South Africa didn't get through to a World Cup final and I'm the guy who's being criticized and I'm really struggling. What judgment do you think people would make on Dale Stane, the number one fast bowler in the world, if you said I'm really battling and I'm struggling and finding things difficult? Um, you would hope that people would be <laughs> sympathized with you, but I don't think they would. Uh, we've got a very tough crowd to please in, in South Africa. Um, and do you think it's just in South Africa? No, worldwide, I suppose. But in South Africa, we, you know, I mean, I grew up watching the Springboks and like sport, like and cricket, obviously, and, and sport kind of makes your weekend. You know, like when the Springboks win on a Friday night, you have a great weekend. When they lose, they're still moaning about it on church on Sunday morning. You know, so like the public really look up to that kind of thing. And they want these robotly built superhumans to go out there and perform. But, you know, people are, we're all the same, you know, we just have a, a higher skill set than other people. So, so you think they want these robotly superhumans or you think they want, you think that's how you should be presented? Because we, we do that with athletes. We look at yeah. Dale Stein, you're the number one fast bowler in the world and you've got this real aggressive game face when you've got the bit between your teeth and you smell blood in the field and you're this warrior. So you need to be that all the time and you need to be the model of mental toughness and a superhuman. Yeah. But that's a, that's, you've got to fake that, you know, like that is the whole thing about that is that for me, I, do, I created that persona. And when I was looking at cricket as a, as a youngster, I enjoyed certain things. Like I enjoyed like the West Indian fast bowlers. I thought they were scary. I'd never met them before, but I watched them and I was like, Jeepers, these guys are scary, you know. Alan Donald with the, the sunblock and the rhythm and, the, and everything. And uh, uh, Shane Warne with like a little bit of banter. And I, I would steal little parts of all of these cricketers that were just absolute legends, you know, and, and, a, and a cut above everybody else. And I wanted them 
to be part of me, who I was. So I created this kind of persona, on the field kind of monster. And it's tough now because uh, people still think that that's who I am. So some, I've literally seen people like in the supermarket, like tell their kids, don't go and greet him because <laughs> he's an angry he's man. He's a really scary guy. He's a scary guy, you know? Like, and I'm like, hmm, you know? Uh, all I really want to do is just play with your puppy that you've got, but it's fine, don't worry about it, leave me alone. Um, so, you know, you create that kind of persona um, and then you walk off the field and then you go, you step into who you really are, you know, just like everybody else, oh. you know, I'm just just worried about everyday life things, you know. But you're not even like everybody else because you, you're so gentle and you're such a nice guy. You know? And if, if we were just walking for the swim this morning and as soon as you see someone with a dog, you just want to go and play with their dog or talk to their <laughs> grandmother. It's like, yeah. you're the softest, gentlest guy out and yet the meanest fast bowler that ever was. Yeah, I mean, you got to listen to what people also say. So like Mone Moko was probably one of the scariest bowlers that I'd ever faced in my life. But listening to people around they always said, Mornay, you need a little bit more aggro in you. You need to be a little bit more scary, you know? And Mornay could never take that step. Mornay is the nicest guy you will ever meet. Yeah. And um, nicer than me. And, um, and that was the thing. And I listened to what they're saying and I'm like, okay, cool. Well, if he needs to be scary, I need to be scarier, you know? Yeah. Like, I've got to be even more than that. Um, so I would also listen to what people said, what was required to be the best, and then I'd like, okay, cool. If I can't be that, then I'm gonna fake that part. I'm gonna fake okay. it as much as I can. Okay. It's, it is exhausting, I'm not gonna lie. Like, it is absolutely exhausting. Uh, and I had like once or twice, when I remember playing against England, that test match at the Oval, Hashim scored 300. Trend, yeah. And uh, I remember it was like day four or whatever it was, we had to go and bowl, and I was exhausted. And I saw England were, they had a little bit about them that morning and I thought, okay, cool. What I'm gonna do, my game plan was simple. In the mornings before the game starts, you all go warm up. England will warm up on the right side, we warm up on the left. I was gonna run onto that field. I was gonna be as loud as I possibly could. I'm gonna kick that soccer ball. I'm gonna be bouncy, but I'm gonna give myself 30 minutes of doing this and I'm gonna be in their faces. But I was exhausted. I was like, before I went onto the field, I, I could hardly take one step, but I sucked it up and I went out there and I did that. And then I ran back up the stairs, like bouncing like I was some, like I was on gummy berry juice. And I walked into the dressing room, I absolutely, I just collapsed. And I started to lie there for a while and gather myself before we had to go and bowl. And I was like, okay, half the job is done. I've scared the shit out of these guys. <laughs> and I haven't bowled a ball yet. And I went out and I was able to take five wickets in the second innings and we won that test match. Imran Tahir was actually the, he won the game, but like I got five, luckily enough. But like that's, that's the level of faking that I had to do, you know, to sometimes succeed. Like, okay, so that really, as, as a competitor, that's really worked for you to pick up that role. But as we spoke about earlier, that when it comes to being the person and what's going on inside and from an, a mental, an emotional level, to continue playing that and presenting that is really difficult. It's extremely difficult. And I, like, it's probably the biggest thing about retirement right now that I'm so happy about. Like, that I, have, I don't have to fake anything about myself anymore. Like, you know, and like, for, for a long time, I felt like I had to be somebody else to be accepted for like the cricket world, you know? So now I'm sitting here, 
I'm barefoot and I've got long hair that comes to my shoulders and I've got a big tattoo on my arm and you know and that and when when you're in the cricketing kind of world that 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 kind of stuff is not kind of acceptable you know maybe tattoos now but like you can't look like that you have to look a certain part you know and and that also goes to an emotional point of view like you know I I am an emotional person you know I like I love to love and like um, it's fine if your heart gets broken and I like to cry because I want to get that out sad movies and that but when you're on the cricket field you're not allowed to show any of that stuff you know like you have to so I'm so happy now that I don't have to be that anymore and ruin everyone's expectation of who I actually am. <laughs> but I'm fine with that. I can sleep better at night now. And I wonder if and you, you're not you're not alone and unique in being the kind of person you think people want you to be and wearing that whatever mask and that persona and the exhaustedness of it. Are you surprised now, particularly through the bio bubbles and um, the lockdowns that we're seeing so many players struggling with mental well-being you saying in good times when you're at the top of the world for such a long period of time it's exhausting and difficult trying to be something other than who you are imagine trying to be that now and for the, someone who's not at the top of the world does it surprise you with the amount we're hearing now around mental problems and players pulling out because of just it's too much mental? not at all like it, for me i also couldn't do it anymore like i did it i did the ipl uh, last year and i was just sitting and you must understand, like up to that point, and you had done it too, we'd traveled the globe like playing cricket. And one of my most exciting things is when someone says to you, where's your favorite place to tour? I go, oh, the West Indies. Why? And I mean, the pitches are no, not conclusive, great for fast bowling, you know. If you're a fast bowler, you don't want to go to the West Indies, you know. Um, but like the lifestyle, like you're on the beach and you get to go and do all this kind of stuff and everything like that. And imagine being a cricketer now. They go, where's your favorite place to tour? Oh, well, Dubai's got a beautiful hotel. That's where I like, you know, great yeah. hotel. So I'll take Dubai, you know. Like we were able to get out and really do all the things that I wanted to do. And the moment that that was taken away from me, um, I felt like I wasn't going to be the person and the cricketer that I wanted to be. So, like, I couldn't do it anymore. So, I stepped away from it, couldn't uh, spend time in a Bible bill, um, quarantine. I was just like, this is not what I'm built out to do. And therefore, I'm not going to put out the performances on the field. It's just going to weigh heavily on me, mentally and physically. So, like, I'm going to step away from it. And ultimately, it just led to me going, I can't carry on doing this, I'm just not going to play. Physically, I could probably still play the game, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of players are doing this. And you see the best in the world, guys like Ben Stokes, are just going, I don't know his reasoning, but I'm almost certain that it's in a similar kind of thing, you know, where he's just like, I don't want to do that, you know? Does that make sense? Can you, what, what, imagine the youngster now who, you, you got to around about retirement time, you didn't want to go through this. Ben Stokes is been at the top of the game, his place is pretty much ensured when he comes back to the game in the England team. But what of a youngster or someone in their first three, four, five years of international cricket or international sport who is really struggling through this bi bubble experience? How do they manage themselves? Can they put their hand up and say to the coach, I'm struggling, but I want to miss a tour? So difficult. I mean, you, you say, I'm struggling, I'm going to miss a tour, they'll find someone to replace you straight away. You know, that's just how it seems like. And, and probably judge you as mentally weak or mentally soft or you can't handle it, so you don't deserve to be here anyway. 100%. And when your name comes up for another tour, they might go, well, we're looking at this guy. Can you remember the last tour? He pulled out halfway because he, he didn't want 
nope, we're not going to select him. Or go to the IPL, nope, we're not going to buy him because he might not come, you know. So it's a really tough time um, for, for players. And, and do you think that's a smart way of, like, if in, in 15 years' time, if we look back and realize that's how we judge players, do you think we're managing that very smartly? We're being smart around that at the moment? No, not at, not at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, and it, and you know the thing about this, when you walk into these teams, all these teams, they've got everything. They've got they've got they've got somebody who who can tell you they can train you physically, blah blah blah. You know they've got a bowling mm-hmm. coach, they've got a wicket keeping coach, they've got a fielding coach. I don't understand why anybody has a fielding coach because you know like just watch the ball and <laughs> catch the ball. Easy you know? enough for you. Yeah. <laughs> There's enough guys that can teach you that, but when it comes to like the mental part, they very rarely want to take on somebody. To help, and I get that having one person in the team is not not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but it's at least somebody, and that person can suggest speaking to somebody else or something like that. But no one seems to want to have that. They almost feel um, threatened by somebody in that space, and they would prefer not to have them and just get another player. Yeah. You know. So the reality is, we, we know that having a mental coach or sports psychologist, at least until fairly recently, it doesn't work because a lot of teams have tried that. Players don't speak to them. They say it doesn't work and the, player, the person goes on. Um, you know, part of the problem, having played that mental coaching role myself in different teams around the world, it's players are reticent to actually own up and say, I'm struggling with something because, yeah. and they tell, they enough players have told me because I'm worried about what people will think if I say I'm struggling. They will think I'm mentally weak. They will think I'm mentally fragile and they will, that judgment will count against me. So as you were saying earlier, I need to pretend I'm really tough. I need to pretend everything's fine. And like you did after the 2015 World Cup, you wanted to pretend that, hey guys, it's okay. So the, to make the youngsters feel better and feel okay, and if it Dale's okay, then it must be okay. There is a place for that, but it leaves a gaping hole of insincerity and it says that, it, as you said, cowboys don't cry. It's not okay to be human, to feel the normal human vulnerabilities, fragilities. I mean, were you always full of self-confidence all the time? No, not, no. But, you, but, you, <laughs> but athletes, you're supposed to. Self-confidence is supposed to be... Yeah. No. And, and you were the best in the world for, yeah. so, for longer than anyone else. And you saying to me, you weren't like full of confidence. No, um, not always. But I, I had this like, I always wanted to prove people wrong. So that was the one thing that I always wanted to do. And I'd, I'd, I would do whatever it required. So if I needed to fake it or something like that, then I'd go, I'd step into that uncomfortable kind of place, you know. Um, but I was never like super self-confident, you know. I was just happy with being... I came from Palabora. Nobody ever makes it out of Palabora. <laughs> you know? so I was like, I made it. Just moving to Pretoria was enough already. You know, like, but I wanted to keep going and everything. So I, I just kind of wanted to let the performances do do their part. But um, was I super confident of achieving it? No, no. And so for any, a long time, also, sorry, yeah. for a long time, I also realized that I, I felt like I had that imposter syndrome. You know, for, yeah. like I was like, why are these people not realizing I'm not actually as good? as they think I am, you know. Um, I shouldn't be here and I shouldn't be number one for this long. There's other guys that are much better than me, you know, and I had that for a, for a long time too, but I didn't want to say it out loud because I was like, it might ruin this this ride that yeah. I'm on right here. <laughs> but I certainly felt it, you know, like a lot of the time. Yeah, it might ruin people's perceptions of you. Mm. So, so if you weren't 
super confident all the time. What, what did you have negative thoughts or or doubts or insecurities? I mean, now that you finished playing, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't talk about this back then. But what were your doubts or your insecurities around yourself and your performances? Just sometimes felt like I was. Some days I woke up and I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna get through this test match. I don't know, like from a physical point of view, I was either sore or I wasn't landing the ball in the right place. Like, I was just like, I don't know how I'm gonna do this. So I set these, I created like, I created that persona and I, I figured it as like being a super human kind of thing, like a Superman or a Batman or something like that. So I kind of separated myself from, from the uniform and I made a deal with myself that the moment I put on my clothing to play, like that I stepped into that role of that person and that person didn't have the vulnerabilities and the fragilities and all the kind of stuff and the worries that I myself, Dale Stain, had. Um, and then when I walked onto the field, that was my, my, my place where the superhuman kind okay. of, that was where I operated. And none of that stuff kind of got into that space. But the moment I walked off the field, I, was, I stepped back into who I actually was and all of that stuff can come rushing back and sometimes completely blurred as to what's happened on the cricket field. And I suppose that's what they call being in the zone and, yeah. and whatnot, you know? And not even realizing what the hell just happened, you know? And that's why I can't remember the, the six balls that I bowled against New Zealand and why when people talk about that one spell against Sachin, they, some guys know in Cape Town, they know how many overs I bowled. I don't remember it. Like, I remember maybe nicking him off and the umpire giving it not out. Other than that, I was just you know, pissed off that I didn't get him out. But everyone can remember like that hour and a half session. That, and I'm like, I can't remember anything about it, you know? Like I was just in the zone, you know? Yeah. Like I was that person, I was in the zone. And then when I walked back into the dressing room, it was like, well, didn't get him out, so it didn't actually matter, you know? Like, let's move on, you know? But, you know, people are very aware of what happened in that period. I don't know, it's like stepping in the Bermuda Triangle, it's just okay. gone. Yeah, so, and that, that's a beautiful illustration of what happens in the zone, that we are so present, so in the moment, we're not in our thinking brain, So, and it's in our thinking brain that we remember stuff. It's also in our thinking brain that all of our mental obstacles come. So you were very good when you stepped into that persona, when you had the ball in your hand, the bit between your teeth, you played that role, but then you say when you walked off the field or away from the game, you stepped back into Dale, into the vulnerabilities and the insecurities, but you never spoke to anybody about that. You kept those from, kept anyone from seeing that. Yeah, I, I spoke to a point when I felt like, I've had some like good advice through my years and everything like that. Like, um, and I like to I like to listen like a lot. I like to talk a lot of crap. Like in the dressing room, I'm always talking crap. So I'm always yeah. around the boys and I'm like making jokes and everything like that. But when it comes to something that's like super serious and I want to learn, I'm quite I'm all ears. I'll sit and I'll listen, 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 and I'll ask questions to a point of where I feel comfortable, and then I take what I need and then I'll walk away. So I I would speak to people, like I'd speak to yourself or something and get what I needed without allowing that person to know that I was I was struggling with a specific thing. And then I'm like, okay, I've, I think I've got enough to handle this or put a lid on it. And then I'd walk away and when it got hectic again, then I felt like maybe now I can ask a little bit more questions, but I'd never like schedule a session where I'm like, I really need to speak about something that's bothering me, you know? So you didn't so much so much share what was going on for you, but you knew stuff was going on, you're struggling, so you would find some tools or some ideas or something without letting on that yeah. you could don't use to manage that. Yeah. 
So, so one of the one of the most fascinating exercises I did was actually was a, was with a, a team in Australia that I coached in the Big Bash League, and I got them and fifteen other athletes from seven different sports, all A-list athletes. So I had thirty athletes from eight different sports, and we had this three-hour conversation around stuff that really mattered to us. And there was only those 30 players, myself, no staff, no media, no photographs, no nothing. And we asked, one of the questions we asked was, what are the things you would love to talk about with fellow athletes who are no threat to you because you're not in each other's game? Mm. And the three things that came up was uh, the big moment, so pressure. Fear was the other thing. And I've long known that pressure and fear are two of the biggest mental obstacles to success in sport. But interestingly, the third point that came up was off-field distractions. Yeah. And they felt that that was one of the three most significant or impactful things on them as professional athletes was off-field distractions. So you've had your some off-field distractions, and I'm going to go straight there and ask the question. You can be happy to say, Paddy, no, it's you know, I don't want to go there. But we had been doing some work together. I was with a South African team at the time. You went through a breakup with a long-term girlfriend. Um, as one example, or you could, are there times through your career when you can look back and go, stuff that went on off the field that really impacted you, what was it and how did it impact you? I think the biggest things that like impacted me is that anything that I really like like loved so like a like a relationship you know with a girl or something or family or something like that it didn't so much bother me if somebody sent me a tweet and said hey you're useless you know I don't know that person that's fine you know it's not nice to read and it can annoy you a little bit but it's like you know but when I'm really like when I love somebody or I've spent a lot of time or given a significant amount of my time to that that kind of impl- uh, impacted me a lot more um but yeah, my partners have always been fantastic. I've always had like long-term relationships and they've taken on a lot of my stuff too, you know? And they've been able to handle <clears throat> a lot of the things that I struggle with at home. So whether it be my dogs are ill or sick and they've got to rush them to the vets. 2011, my dog was really ill. I think we were, we were playing against India. Yeah, And right. um, my dog was very sick and I got messages from home that they thought my dog was gonna, gonna, gonna die and um, had my girlfriend managed to take the dog to the vets and you know literally the day before the game came back all thumbs up dog's gonna survive all clear next day we play against India and I got man of the match and I mean it's like it could have been completely the other way around you know so um, they've managed to handle a lot of the stuff that happens off the field for me. So off-field distractions um, athletes have had them we've no uh, we would all know some teammates who've gone through stuff like a, a breakup off the field or uh, a big fight with an, an agent or fallout or financial difficulty and how that can really impact performance. And yet, again, there isn't really a place to cater for that kind of thing unless it's up to the player to go and speak about it. So... Um, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm fishing here, knowing that at, during a period in your, f- during your career, when you had one of those breakups, um, from the outside or from the outside, I was in the same team as you, it seemed like for a good couple of months, it affected your, your lifestyle, your training habits, and that spilled over to on the field. Um, 
Is that a fair observation? I could we can definitely. cut this out if you're not comfortable no, with this no, because it's some definitely. privilege. Yeah, but it, it, I'm I'm bringing this up more for people who are listening in, who are going through whatever work they're doing, and something is happening at home, and to acknowledge that it happens and how can we, it can either help it can sink us or we can manage ourselves well enough that we can move through it as yep. much as possible. And I really just want to draw on your experience of being at the number one in the world in the limelight and having stuff going that's really impacting your life yeah. away from the game. Yeah, no, it, like, it sucks. <laughs> Obviously, it's never nice. But also the why it impacted me so much is because I relied so heavily on these people to, or this person to help me with a lot of the off-field things that, um, that I wasn't able to kind of handle, you know. So she would take care of a lot of that stuff. And then when, when she was no longer there, I was left with that to kind of handle as well as my own kind of stuff. So now it's just kind of like piled up, really. So I had to deal with the breakup and then I had to deal with all this other stuff which I never, like, when she was dealing with, you know, when, when um, and she didn't tell me about how difficult it was to do this and that and everything and now I've got to do that. So it took a couple months, not just to get over the breakup, but to also find, like, uh, how am I going to, Deal with this stuff. A new you know, rhythm, and because because of course you you had moved from uh, Joe, from Pretoria when you were playing for South Africa, you moved to Cape Town. Yep. So you were new in Cape Town. You didn't necessarily have an established bunch of friends here. You had no family here, and you had no time in Cape Town to establish a friendship circle. So effectively, you were living here, but you actually didn't have. Your yep. people here. No, I had a. I mean, my base came down to Cape Town, and um, my base camp in the sense of who was in my base camp was part of her her camp you know so I kind of just jumped into all her friends all her family and everything because my family are not here my friends are not here a lot of my friends all live in Palabora like a million miles away you yeah. know and are cricketers um, so when you walk away from the cricket field I stepped into her kind of world and when we broke up it was her world so she took it with her and I <laughs> I was left yeah. on my own, you know, and had to kind of like rebuild and restart and everything like that. So you, I did throw myself at the game. I tried, um, but it is difficult. You know, that's, that's the thing. Like breakups are never easy. Like they're just, they're not easy. Yeah. <laughs> or, or breakups or any of the off field. But I think it's just to acknowledge that it really does happen. Yep. And you have the option to try and suck it up and deal with it yourself, particularly as a male, we look to do that, which can tend to draw that difficulty out a hell of a lot longer than what is required. Yeah, definitely. I and mean, like now, I suppose I talk about the game like I'm an expert, I suppose, in the game. Like that's, I don't play, so I'm a commentator. So when I'm watching somebody do well, I, I try and pick up on body language. Um, and not that I'm a body language specialist, but I'm really looking at how they, what what they're doing, you know, and if it is out of character for them. You know, I know guys like David Miller very well. Uh, I know what he does when he's going to go out to bat, all of his stretches. And when I'm watching him walk onto the field, I'm looking for specific changes in that to see if his mind is somewhere else. Because you, if you're skipping things, that means that you, you're not remembering your normal routine, you know, like if you speak to a batter, he'll always say, I put my left pad on, then my right pad, then my right glove, then my right, my left glove, and then my helmet, and then I grab my bat, you know, but if he's putting on his right pad first, and then his left glove, and he's breaking that routine, clearly his mind is not where it's supposed yeah. to be. And that can ultimately have a, an effect on the performance that you see. So if he has a low score or doesn't bowl well, you 
take a couple steps back and you look and you go, well, that wasn't in sync to what you're normally doing and maybe why was that not there and that's a result in why your performances are not where they should be or where you want them to be. So look, looking back, just a, just a couple of snippets now, you've, if you were to give advice to some youngsters, some people following in your footsteps around some very obvious things. So first of all, like, if you hit that period of low form, You've been through it where you've managed well and you've been through it when you've managed badly. What advice would you give someone who's going through a, diff, a, low, a, a low period, they're struggling for form? Oh, wow. <laughs> I would like to say, you see, the thing is people are just like, they're like me, maybe they might not do it, you know. But like, um, just speak up, you know, really speak up. Like, And again, you know, it's really difficult. Uh, but, you know, if you can speak to somebody who you feel has got, who you admire and you can see who's got things in order. I had a couple guys that I felt like these guys are the guys that have got their shit together and I'd always regularly go to them. And, and some of them didn't even play sport. You know, one of them is my agent who, um, he's less an agent and more my best friend than, yeah. than anything else. And I would always call him and he was able to talk to me about his life and what he would do and everything like that. And I'm like, okay, cool. So just, you know, fall back on, share. Share with people that you trust are not going to go out there and spill it to the world. Yeah. And, so, so what I'm hearing from one thing you did well in that is that you picked good mentors, people you trusted. So as a player, you spoke about Mark Boucher at the time as a senior player. You speak about your agent, Dave Rundle, who's a good friend of both of ours. Obviously, he's a good mate of yours. I've known, was at Varsity with Dave got a good head on his shoulders. He's played cricket at the highest level of the game. So have people who you can talk to. It doesn't have to be a sports psychologist. 100%. Um, I mean, Dave even phones me now with his, yeah. with his issues and he's 50-something. So I'm like, yeah. yeah, perfect. You know, we bounce things off of yeah. each other very well. Um, so one of the, the obvious things just to flag that athletes, common mistakes that athletes make when they're in a low run of form is they get overly technical they start looking at problems in their technique when almost always it's probably a problem. It's something else going on and it's something in the mind and it's the attachment to the low form that actually gets it to go on longer and it's not to overly default to technique. Yeah. Uh, disappointments and failures. Again, you know, we've spoken quite about that. 2015, what advice can you give to, would you offer to a youngster who really had a bad game and turn in a poor performance when their team really was looking to them to deliver? I would, I think that's where you got to start early with, um, with, with kids is that, or with people in general, is that um, you, I played multiple sports and skateboarding was, for me was one of the best things that ever, I ever found because if skateboard, if you landed every skateboarding trick, you'd be, the world, you would be a multi, multi millionaire. You know, it's not easy. You know, it's just impossible. So, you could try for a year to do one particular trick and then and then only land it. You know, but you keep finding a way to keep getting up and keep doing it over and over again, and you keep learning every single time. And it's the best thing about skateboarding is that, like, I just feel like I'm never giving up. But it's fun learning how to do it. Um, and cricket is the same thing. Like when you're failing the whole time, it's, it, sh it should be fun to fail like skateboarding. You know, I have to look at them in the same way until I get that wicket or I land that trick. And I try and take what I get from skateboarding and I, I, I put it into cricket rather than walking into the dressing room and want to destroy the dressing room because I didn't 
get the score or get the runs or breaking my skateboard because and that's just who I am. I'm I'm not a very technical person. Um, I'm so more a feel. Yeah. So so skateboarding has taught you, and it's a great example of that because you're going to fail a hell of a lot of times before you succeed. Cricket, we've spoken, I speak a lot. It is a failure game. As a bowler, you're going to get hit for four and six more times than what you want to, would you like to. Fielding, nobody wants to drop a catch, but everyone's going to. So yeah. it's to have a, what I'm hearing from you is have a perspective around failure, that failure is going to happen. It's a normal part of it. And the problem is not the failure. It's the problem is getting caught up and worried and stuck in the failure. And yeah. As you said, you, even you at the highest level of the game, it, you got some in some way or another stuck in a performance at a World Cup that took a year for you to extract yourself from. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't have to last that long. No, it, it, like that lasted long for me, um, just because it just there was a lot of other things that were going on. There was a lot of youngsters, and I should have dealt with it better. Um, but it doesn't have to last that long. You can deal with it a lot quicker. As you said, and it, it, it's just a game. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's, you know, it is just a game. Like, and that's why I like doing all these other things. Like, I love surfing, and then I get it. Cricket's my profession, but like, I love surfing, and I love skateboarding, and I love all these other things because, like, I, I don't mind failing at them. You know, it's fun. Like, it's fun to figure it out and and get better at it. And it's not life and death. And we had a session with Mike Horn where he was, where we met with him in Switzerland. And he was like, you know, the difference between your profession and mine is that <laughs> when I get it wrong, I die. You, when you get it wrong, it's not, you get another opportunity. Yeah. And when you, when you speak to somebody like that on a one-on-one -on -one basis, you, you realize you really shouldn't take it too seriously because it really isn't life and death, you know. Um, although you want to put in good performances. It's it's not the end of the world. Yeah, no. I don't think anywhere in in any in the, the book of life, if there ever was one, and it says it would say that that we have to take ourselves really seriously. Yeah, and it's probably something that a lot of us, myself included, end up <laughs> taking myself and what I do way more seriously than what's actually required. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, if there was a really good question that I could ask you now, what would it be? Um. Jeepers. Uh, I guess a really good question is a question that you don't really know the answer to, I suppose. So if somebody had to ask me, what are you planning on doing with the, with the rest of your life? That would be a really good question because I don't have the answer. <laughs> okay, so you retired from test cricket in... August of 2019, literally two years later, August of 2021, which is very recently retired from all formats of the cricket, which has freed you up to go and talk and do a bit of commentary and talk about the game now, um, and freed you up to do what are you going to do? Well, COVID, I think not just me, but it messed with everyone. <laughs> you know, I was so looking forward to. Uh, being a professional sportsman, you kind of get locked in. Like you get limited time to do the things that you want to do. And I was like, can't wait for the day that I retire when I have all the freedom in the world to go and do all the things that I wanted to do. And now I can't do any of that stuff. We, we can't travel. You know, you, wanna, you have to quarantine or you're red listed. You can't get somewhere. There's no flights. It was kind of weird like that I went, I couldn't wait to retire from this like, um, boundary kind of like uh, locked in space that I'm in 
um, only to retire to step into to step it's into that into normal quite life. Similar. Yeah, so, you know. Uh, so, but it's getting better. I mean, COVID's kind of easing, and you know things are being more relaxed and stuff like that. So, so as far as work goes, you're not quite sure what you're going to do. There obviously will be options. You've got some great skills. If you can transfer some of what sets up your success, the qualities and the characters on the field as a cricketer, no doubt that'll translate to the, the foundations of your success going forward. Uh, without a doubt, who you are as a person really, really counts. We haven't spoken a whole lot about that, but more and more in the sporting world and the business and the political world, even it's no longer just enough to be a really highly talented performer. You People more are, going, are being selected on their character, the kind of people they're being. Um, so that's like a massive quiver. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being really honest here and anyone who knows Dale Stane will know what a good oak you are. So, you know, I don't think there's anyone who does doesn't like you. So you've got all the ingredients. It's just a case of what environment are you going to put that in. Yeah. But one thing that you do know, and I know you will be able to answer, is tell me about some of the places you want to go surfing and some of the places you're going to go fishing in the next couple of years. So, yeah, just on that other point is that, like, I think whatever it is that I'm going to dive into, like, whatever it is that I'm going to go into, I, I do want to upskill myself before I step into that. So, like, just because I took 430 something test wickets doesn't mean that I'm going to be a good bowling coach. Um, it means that I was a good bowler, you know. So before I become a bowling coach, I would love to like learn the skills in teaching. You know, I think that's important. Um, being able to deliver the message and stuff like that. So whatever it is that I want, that I figure that I'm going to do, I will spend a bit of time investing myself into that before I then go and try and help the next person. Just how I would want to do something, but. Um, yeah, fishing and surfing. Fishing, I've got to get back to South America. That's the big one. Um, Bolivia. That's Bolivia, your spot, is, eh? Bolivia is where it's at. We, we Golden Dorado in Bolivia, and then we want to go to Guyana, which has um, got Arapaima, peacock bass, that kind of thing. But uh, February 2023, we've booked for Farquhar, Seychelles. Oh so my goodness, I'm that's jealous. Gonna, I'm jealous. That's crazy. I haven't even told you about that. But that's going to be good. And then um, next year in 2022, there's a bunch of local um, tiger fishing destinations that are new ones that are opening up. So I love tiger fishing. So, um, And 2022, I've promised myself it's the year of the fly. So I'm, I'm going to be mainly throwing nine weight fly, fly rods for big fish uh, and then whatever is smaller fish. But it will be fly fishing predominantly fly fishing. Most of the time now, it's kind of like a in-between, you know, conventional casting and fly. But next year is just going to be fly. So my garage is like stacked with... <laughs> okay. So, so you're migrating from conventional tackle to fly. And when it comes to riding waves, you've been on long boards a hell of a lot. Earlier, you are saying you're sort of coming down and surfing some mid-lengths. Yeah. Where, when you're surfing waves in the next couple of years, what board are you going to be riding as no, you go I, to? Long boards is where it's at for me. Like, I know everyone thinks long boards is like, oh, you want to start surfing, you must surf a long board. And that is fair. Like, it is because it is easier to, they're more buoyant and like that. But there's a style in which longboarding, like logging, you know, yeah. and when you're walking the nose and everything that I just find is more appealing to me than air reverses on a shortboard. Like, um, like I'm, I'm not going to do that, you know. You're doing I'm, your airs on a skateboard I'm, at the moment. That's, that's where I do my airs, you know, and, like, and that's fine. That's where I want to do that. And on the water, I want to walk on the board. I want to make it look really pretty and artistic. Um, but I am migrating into like your 
mid-lengths. Um, and if you watch somebody like Torren Martin surf, like he doesn't do any airs, but if you watch him surf, it just looks like so beautiful. You know, like he just doesn't do a single air and he just makes it look absolutely wonderful. And that's kind of the surfing that I want to do. You know, I, I see something and I'm like, that's it, you know? So I was a bowler, but uh, it didn't mean that one day I was going to bowl fast and the next day I was going to bowl spin. Like I loved fast bowling. Yeah. So I was... That's, that's what you're you know, going to do. And it's the same thing with surfing, I suppose. Like, I love logging. So I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to drift into the mid-length kind of stuff. So now, also now I can actually ask the question. I know there was times when you were recovering from your shoulder and some injuries where you had very strict instructions around what rehabilitation to do in the gym and you were told not to get in the water and surf. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever contravene those guidelines or rules? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> no, there needs to be a space for living, you know? Like, you have to, like... And I just, I figured, like, I was... I played golf for a long time, my dad was a greenkeeper and I played golf before I even played cricket. But like, I don't play golf anymore. So like, why is it that guys are loud when they're injured, they can go and play golf. But if I go play golf, I'm more than likely going to like tear a hip or a side strain or something like that, you know. So I wouldn't suggest that Jock Callis go and get on a surfboard, you know, because he's probably going to hurt himself. So I'm not going to suggest that Dale Stane go and play golf because I'm probably going to hurt myself. So I do what I know. And, um, and I found like when I'm doing that stuff, I'm going to recover so much quicker. <laughs> because you're in your happy space and there's obviously something... Correct, yeah. But and you was... weren't necessarily posting no. f f a footage on social media of those sessions when you were not no. supposed to be but doing I, that. I even got into trouble because like, I would do, like, I do what's called a throwback Thursday. Like, I mean, throwback Thursday has been around for years. Yeah. But I'd post a picture of myself at the beach a throwback Thursday and then I'd get um, into trouble because someone would be like, one of the coaches would be like, have you seen Dale's Instagram? He's, in, he's on some beach in Mauritius and he should be in the gym training. And I'm like, did you not read that that was like from five years ago? It you was know? a throwback Thursday, but you probably were on some beach surfing then. Well, don't tell anyway. anybody, but yes, I was. But like, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you just need to, you've also got to, you just got to do what keep, makes you happy. You know, that's the other thing. Yeah. Like, you just if when you're happy, things recover faster, and you seem to get better so much quicker, and um, a good healthy balance, you know. And only you can tell what's a good healthy balance. And I was professional in the sense that cricket was my main priority. I loved cricket. It was I was paid to do it, so I mean that I had responsibilities from the people that were paying me. So I didn't push it in the things that made me happy, but I needed my dose, you know, yeah. to keep me going. Last little thing I want to chat about is coaching. So you talk about you potentially, it's an option to go into coaching. Definitely. You would have had a number of coaches. So what are some of the things that characterize really good coaches? And I'm going to also ask you, what are some of the things that coaches did that really didn't work for you? Yeah, okay. Um, well, you don't have to, and you don't necessarily have to give names. Maybe yeah. just what what they did, what was about them, and the way they operated. Yeah. Well, I think so. If I look at it, uh, like like from above everything, like I, I look at myself, and I was probably the easiest guy in the world to coach because technically I had no issues with my my action or my run up. I was very smooth. I I didn't struggle with injuries, so I was kind of like this. Just I don't know, like. 
You're just a, a machine that just yeah. Yeah, you know, and I was I was a, a Mercedes G wagon. Like I just went, no problem. Nothing kind of stopped me. So coaching, I was the easiest person in the world to coach. Um, so for me, what I mean is that I need to spend a little bit of time with this. I need to upskill myself in learning how to deliver the message and everything because. Uh, getting too much information can be a good thing and a bad thing. And having somebody who sits on the sideline and lets you do your own thing can also be a good and a bad thing. So you need to strike a balance. But I think having good relationships with the, with the players that you're coaching is the most important thing. Noticing what they do when they're doing really well, um, reminding them of those things, and, and noticing what they do when they're, when they're doing really bad and just telling them that you feel like they're slipping into that kind of section and really just offering your assistance and asking them what it is that they want. And once the guys get to the highest level, they've gotten there because they're really good. You just really want to maintain them there and keep pushing them to get better the whole time. But it, it does boil down to the, to the player. And a coach should never be responsible for a player's failures or successes. It's really, it's really them, you know. What are one or two things that either you experienced or saw or heard other players speak about that you would suggest coaches going forward really don't do? What are the red flags of coaching? Um, the red flags of coaching um, is just not paying enough attention to when, when players are, are trying to make changes in themselves. Like I, I can remember having a conversation with yourself actually uh, about my behavior on the field when some when fielders would drop catches. And the conversation was quite simple. We were sitting on a plane flying from Durban to PE and I can remember it. And you said, can I be honest with you? And I said, yes. And you said, do you know that you're actually a dick on the cricket field? And I was a bit taken back by it. And uh, you said that when a catch goes in the air and someone drops a catch, your behavior is a little bit like it's not right because that player then, the next time the ball goes in the air, they're more scared to disappoint you than they are about actually focusing on taking the catch. And I can remember going, Jesus, okay, I'm gonna have to change the way that I like behave and act when something doesn't go my way on the field. So it took a lot of me, but I was like, cool, I'm gonna do that. And for probably a solid two years, I never made one gesture or swore or anything like that once when a fielding mishap happened, whether it be a drop catch or a fumble or something like that. And, um, and I was with a coach, and I'm not going to mention his name, and he just said, like a couple of years later, he was like, you know, we were talking about fielders and grumpy bowlers and everything, and, they were, and this coach said, like you, when someone drops a catch, how, how grumpy you are with, um, with the fielders. And I was like, no, I'm not. And they're like, you are. And I was like, no, I'm not, because for the last three years, I've made a, a real mental and physical attempt not to do that and not to behave that way, but you haven't noticed it. And that for me was a disappointment because I was like, surely the coach should have noticed it in that amount of time and said, you know, I've noticed you've done this, well done, you know, but they didn't. And that for me was kind of disappointing, yeah. Awesome, Dalo. We could carry on chatting forever. It's, yeah, it's, sorry, it's been nuts. No, it's been awesome. <laughs> I it's, can. You know, literally, it's just been lacquer to sit in the lounge after a great swim this morning and have a conversation about cricket and yourself and hopefully some stuff that matters and that can add value to people who are listening in. So awesome. This was my first and really awesome. And from here on, I look forward to fishing and surfing even more often with you now that Definitely you're traveling around the world. Definitely going to come swim more now. That was epic. Oh, thank you. 
Sure, what a legend Dalstein is. So easy to chat to and so honest in his sharing. He really is a top man. I must say, I went into this morning nervous, a bit about the swim in freezing water, but more so about it being my first podcast interview, thinking, were we really going to get to those honest conversations? Now that it's done, I've gone from nervous to flippin' excited and super excited about the next interviews that are already lined up for you. If you're even half as excited as I am about these conversations, please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, family, aunties and uncles. Fuck, that sounds so generic, but I really mean it. Please share this. For updates, new episodes and cool stuff from the world of high performance, follow me on Instagram at Paddy Upton and visit my website www.paddyupton.com where you can subscribe to my newsletter and you'll find a heap of interesting blog articles and videos. See you next time. Actually, you won't see me, but you'll hear from me and another fascinating guest in Lessons from the World's Best.